0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So, Courtney, we find ourselves back in person again.
1: We are. That's nice. And we're outside. It's very nice out here.
0: And this this week's episode is actually quite a cheery one we get to talk about. Um, We recently had an event at the school that we work at and um, yeah, tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, basically, uh, I'd say over a year ago, I I went up to uh, Kevin Murray, who's uh, one of our biostatisticians and head of graduate
0: school or something. Definite
1: future guest. Yeah, definite future guest, (laughs) although he might disagree. Um, uh, After I did my three-minute thesis, and I was like, we need to we need to get everyone doing this uh, kind of project. And the three-minute thesis very quickly is where you have to describe your PhD thesis in three minutes and make it entertaining. Um, And so I went up to him afterwards, like after I'd done this, and, yeah, I was like, Kevin, we need to do this for all researchers because it was just so uh, important in my mind. Um, And he was on board, so we created uh, an event called Let's Present for our school And um, we made the requirements that they can only talk for three minutes, uh, but they can present whatever they want as long as it's um, something uh, research-related over the past year that they've done and they can present it however they wanted. So it could be poems or um, skits or letters or however they wanted to present it. Um, uh, Yeah, so we did that recently and it was very, very cool it was really good. Um, yeah, so we had a big organising committee to help organise this event, and uh, we, Craig and I, we decided to interview some people during lunchtime. Yeah,
0: we had a roaming microphone and walked around and yeah. put people on the spot.
1: We uh, really got our like
0: journalism on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit like being a field reporter. It wasn't
1: was. It? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty funny. I quite liked it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's all those people that didn't run away when we stuck a microphone Mm, in your face thank mm -hmm. you very much yes we
1: appreciate (laughs) it (laughs) um
0: i didn't count the final number of people that spoke with us but it was sort of around eight or nine yeah so um some which was just a quite a quick chat and others went into a little bit more detail Mm. about their work and who they were Yeah. yeah yeah so we hope you guys enjoy the various short and slightly longer conversations that are coming up yeah. So, uh, so we're here with Professor Ian Lee, and we've just been treated to a
2: to a magic show of sorts.
0: Yeah, tell us about yourself, Ian.
2: Uh, I'm a health and labour economist at the School of Population and Global Health, uh, I'm a member of the teaching and research staff and I work in many different areas of applied economics and policy and um, mainly in health, labour and education. Mm-hmm. So you, it looked like you're a bit of a jack of all trades there from, mm-hmm. the, from the show that you just gave us, you've touched on a lot of different areas over the years. That's right. uh, And I think that that's one of the fortunate things about being a member of the teaching and research staff. Mm -hmm. I do get considerable flexibility in terms of the research areas that I pursue. I have, um, you know, basically whatever interests me, I will go into it. And as I progressed on through my career, everything is just so related that I'm very fortunate as well to have a wide collaboration network that I can work on all these different bits and pieces together. But as I've just done in my presentation, what excites me and frustrates me at the same time is how we combine, integrate and balance out all these different areas.
1: And so is that how you came up with your your magic trick to kind of summarize all your research?
2: I did. I put quite a bit of thought into this one. I yeah. wanted something that would be visual, something that would be relevant to my research. I didn't want to do a magic trick just for the sake of doing a magic trick. So, um, yes, uh, and I thought that this was perfect for what I had in mind and showcases all the different areas I'm involved with, but also highlights the greatest challenge, and that's policy is a tightrope. You know, it's precarious, and you have to try to balance out everything, but ultimately it's all for the uh, improvement in well-being of the population. Yeah,
0: not very good. Well, Thanks awesome. very much. Yeah.
3: Thanks, Ed. We've
0: just, just seen your talk, back. Yes. you just want to tell people who you are and what you're doing.
3: Yeah, <laughs> my name's Rebecca Glowett. Uh, I've recently moved um, to UWA to, from Telethon Kids Institute, uh, working with a lot of population-level data sets that are uh, collected by government agencies and linking them up to look at intergenerational changes and impacts over time and um, outcomes and risk factors and also resilience factors for children and young people and looking at who's doing well and who's not doing well and why.
4: So
1: what do you think is going to be like the most exciting or the one that you're going to be most passionate about in terms of the research
3: projects you could get out of this? Oh, that's a hard question. I'm kind of a bit of across the board, actually. I I get a bit excited about most things. But um, the mental health aspects, I think, is a really big uh, issue at the moment, particularly in our young people. So uh, looking at the impact of uh, parental mental health and sibling mental health um, and intergenerational or passing those things along, I think.
0: Okay, and you're involved with the Child Development
3: Atlas or Health? Yeah, yeah, so we created the West Australian Child Development Atlas, which is geospatially uh, mapping data on children and young people across Western Australia, and we've recently just received a grant to create the Australian National uh, Child Health and Development Atlas, so we're working with colleagues uh, across the country to try and get uh, an Australian map of children and young people so we can look at how they're doing um, in different uh, geographical areas and compare states and territories and communities and try and improve people's health.
0: Yeah, and, and, and anyone can access it. Yep, right?
3: free yeah. to access.
0: Yeah, yep. fantastic. Well, oh, yep. thanks very
3: much.
5: Thank you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys want to introduce yourselves?
6: Uh, my name's Rory Watts.
5: Hi, I'm Monique Platel.
0: Very good. And you're now both post-docs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah.
5: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Congratulations. post-doctorate. Post-doctorate.
5: Yeah.
0: Post-doctorate. yeah. 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 Monique, what do you do? What sort
5: of work do you do? So I'm actually working for Karen, who was my PhD supervisor, one of my supervisors. Yep. And so I work on the Thoughtful Schools program, okay. which is basically a program educating schools about trauma-informed practice yep. and how to better support kids with trauma, so yeah. yeah that's what so, I
0: do. So I should say, we've had Karen um, you're talking about Karen Martin yes, on the yep. podcast Karen
5: before a, number the a number of times. Yep. She yep.
0: actually talked about that project, so that's oh, really good. good.
5: Yeah.
6: good. Yeah. Awesome as
3: well.
5: yeah. Yeah. And Rory, what are you doing now, post PhD?
6: Uh, trying to get more sun, but Excellent. not failing in that. <laughs> uh, I'm a consultant with the World Health Organisation, and just a programmer now. I used to do vaguely health things, but now I just build health models for people, so looking at Scaling up cancer coverage and costs and effects of that. Okay. Awesome. And you're doing that from Perth, obviously. Yes, which yeah. means I was just saying oh, okay. I've got a meeting next week and it's either at 12 am on Tuesday or 12 am at Wednesday. Oh, no, that's so, it's, terrible. yeah. <laughs> it's a good problem to have, I suppose.
1: <laughs> Are you guys enjoying the, the postdoc kind of feel? Is it easier than doing a PhD? Is it harder? Like, what, what's the vibe?
6: What can we expect?
5: Yeah, what can we expect? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um, I'd say it's definitely. I mean, not easier. I think working. Has its challenges as well, but it's nice to kind of, yeah, just have it completed. And it's like, it's just yeah. like for me personally, it was this kind of personal journey of just learning and to do that for myself. And yeah, yeah and it's cool to put doctor in front of my name now <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I can tick that little box on, on surveys. So, yeah, I don't know.
6: I, I guess I'm technically not a post doctorate, so I can't, okay. but the, I, I think work life is more manageable yeah. because for most people. PhD life isn't exclusively PhD life, it's PhD plus a bit of work life. So having one thing that you can focus on solely is. Usually more manageable for yeah, people that you maybe don't need to think about it at three in the morning.
5: Yeah. Like, yes.
0: Yeah. And wake up on the. Cold at sleep. Least, at <laughs> least
5: with a job, it's like you kind of like clock in and out. But with a PhD, it's that constant lingering of yeah. like, what do I need to do next? So that's nice, not having that. Yeah. Right,
0: okay. Well, thanks for sharing your experience with us. Pleasure. To good work. luck. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you have a really interesting presentation there, which I'm assuming was deliberately designed to get people thinking and feeling something.
7: Yeah. What I wanted to. Um, um, to try to achieve was a couple of things. Number one, really speak about lived experience and the importance of lived experience in research, but um, also try to distill a whole range of um, coercive control tactics that's facilitated through, uh, through technology and bring it together um, in one, one way. And I thought, well, the best way to do that is what? Um, I didn't really know, so I thought, oh, let's just jump in and try and open a letter and you know, yeah. put all that experience to... Yeah. All those sort of tactics from one person's experience. And, yeah. yeah.
0: Interesting. It's, it's interesting how the technology can be used in so many different ways to it. Too. I, I don't know if you term it abuse or coercion. or.
7: It, it's, it's both of those things, yeah. yeah. It just adds a whole extra layer of um, ways and strategies that can be used. And the I think what's um, particularly insidious about it is it just knows no boundaries. So you, you can't physically... Let's previously, you know, you could leave a, a violent relationship, go into state, you potentially you've got some sort of, you know, safety if you like, but because of the ubiquitous of technology, it's just everywhere, and you can't just disengage from it, because it's so integral to our lives. So. And how, how do you go about researching something that is so, yeah, I don't even know the word to describe it, yeah. Uh, look, uh, the first thing I think is to really understand what, you know, how people experience it, and what the... the brain in the depth of that is but, and, and that's been done to a certain extent, but what's really missing is, well, what do we do about it? Um, because the people who normally you know, develop interventions, they don't have any idea about technology. They're, they're social workers, they're psychologists, they're legal people. So um, what it really demands is that um, the whole sector needs to make relationships with a whole different sector that you know they've had no, no interaction with before. Because if you don't, you're really saying to women, well, just don't use technology and you, you, can't. you can't and I mean you know you can't also say well you're the victim but also you have to you know suffer yeah. the, the, the consequences of the intervention um, so it's really about okay who do we need to engage and, and in what in what capacity and um, engaging people like big tech I mean what are they now meta yeah yeah for example yeah the metaverse yeah. Um, um, for example, but also the people who design the devices. I mean, is there something in design wise that we can do to, you know, to? To prevent in you know some sort of primary way, yeah. so it's a whole new world.
0: Yeah, I think the response has, has to be as innovative as the perpetrators are. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading about people um, booking hair appointments, and that's a code for you know saying, calling out for help, saying that they're being abused.
7: Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, and the research that um, Laura McTavish, our uh, master student, is doing, she's sort of been you know sort of asking uh, service providers what they think around interventions and they're, they're really sort of stuck in this old paradigm around well you know, education and what have yeah. you but we really need to jump outside that box yeah. and think more innovatively okay.
0: and you mentioned towards the end of your talk there that there's a collaboration currently going on do you want to speak about that a little
7: yeah, bit? Yeah so that we came about through the World Universities Network um, it was around uh, intimate partner violence and mental health and we thought well what can we do in this space um, and one of the, the glaring gaps was around um, the, the impact of technology, um, okay. particularly on, on mental health. So, But what, what we've looked at, we had to take a step back because we really weren't at that stage of looking at the mental health impacts. So we've done a scoping review of the research that was out there um, and we've also written a book chapter in a gender-based violence book. So that's where we're at the moment. Um, we're looking at next, what we want to look at is the way that children are used as a sort of a a sort of a media, not a mediator, but a sort of a middle step where, you know, another avenue through um, for through which um, the woman can be abused. So um, getting um, ground for that, so exploring that. But really looking at the way that does the impact of technology really need to have a rethink around the way that we actually conceptualise, yeah. you know, partner violence. So it's really quite exciting. That is
0: exciting. Ho- Fascinating
7: area. Yeah,
0: ho- hopefully you guys can get the funding that you're looking for and- yeah. 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 Thanks very
7: much for your time.
4: No worries. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm Patsy Diprinzio. I'm with the Neuropsychiatric Epidemiology Research Unit. We call ourselves NERU. Um, and we work in schizophrenia epidemiology, trying to understand the Uh, trials that are experienced by people with uh, severe mental illness such as schizophrenia across Australia Um, and in particular the kinds of environment that children born to women with severe mental illness may experience during their lifetime. So what what drew you to this area of research? I fell into it. Um, I was a statistician that was out of the workforce for a long time, and at a chance meeting, somebody said, "We need you on our team," and. Um I came and started working with Vera and haven't left, yeah, but I've, yeah, it's, it's really worthwhile work. It's the kind of thing I, it, I don't think I could have done in my 20s, I don't think I would have had the patience for such precise exacting, waiting for data to, to happen, but yeah. Now that I'm more mature, I have more patience and okay. you can see that it's just a slow, methodical process. Yeah.
0: And Are there any um, kind of alarming or really interesting things that you've found out recently from the work you've done?
4: Uh, well, you'll have to wait till our presentation, which is starting in just <laughs> yeah, an
0: hour. By well, the time people hear this, your presentation will, will have been well and truly done. That's right. <laughs>
4: yeah. um, speak about some really interesting findings from a few years ago now. That, um, so people with psychosis often because of their antipsychotic medication or you know their lifestyle risk factors have on average much poorer metabolic health and uh, cardiometabolic health than, than others. Um, in, um, in one of our studies, Anna discovered that for men who smoked cannabis regularly, um, those that difference wasn't as great. In fact, for men with psychosis smoking cannabis, they were less likely to have metabolic syndrome than men with psychosis not smoking cannabis. Okay. So um, that took quite a bit of convincing to get the American Journal to publish. And okay. so, of course, it always comes with caveats that it's cross-sectional, it's yeah. interesting. We should look into this further, but you know,
0: and, and metabolic we're not. Syndrome yeah. leads to weight gain and that sort of stuff. Is that? Uh,
4: that's one of the. Um, that's one of the triggers, mm-hmm. or that's one of the the flags for it. So, okay. not being clinician, I, I hope I've got this right. Mm-hmm out of five, I think there's about five measures. Um, You know, your lipids and your blood pressure, your sugar levels, your waist circumference, and something Something else. else. Okay. Yeah, something, something like that, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so I don't know know think is, if there's three out of five of those, yeah. it's classed as having metabolics.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, really interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. well thanks very much for your time.
4: And we also look forward to listening to your presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Um and can I ask a question? Yes. Of course. Absolutely. My daughter will want to know where you got your boots.
1: Oh, okay, so <laughs> just for the for the listeners, I'm wearing these very bright uh, pink boots. Um, I actually bought them
4: online. Um, I'm trying to remember the website.
1: They
0: sort of look a bit like army boots or something, don't they? they yeah,
4: do they're like yeah. um, they're not. Yeah, they look like. They're, yeah, they're like big, baby big combat, combat steel caps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they also yeah. came with these like
1: little bags that I could put on the side as well. Crazy. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of the online
4: websites. I can't remember which one it is, okay. but I might. Yeah, I'll I might. try and find it out for you. Awesome. Maybe <laughs> this year I'll actually be able to give give a, a Christmas present that, get, uh, yeah, that gets yeah, rated. Are, yeah,
8: awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> do
0: you for, the, uh, for the listeners, do you just want to tell us who you are and what you're doing?
8: Uh, my name is Kate and I am a um, postdoc. Yep. I am a visitor here at uh, the School of Population Health. I'm working for the University of Sydney and I work predominantly on a large um, study um, called the Australian Suicide Prevention Australian Suicide Prevention for Health Link Data study, the Ashley study. Bit of a handful Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So we've linked um, cases from um, suicide deaths between 2013 to 2019 all over Australia to their previous medicines, healthcare and um, hospitalisations. And we're really looking at gaps in care. So who hasn't seen um, or who has the greatest potential to have been helped and who didn't have a great potential to be helped. And then we want to look at that geographically, to see whether we can see any areas in Australia where we need to work on suicide Mm. prevention, but we also look at the medicines involved and any medicines that were involved in the actual deaths, so in terms of um, uh, prescribing practices that we could change in future. Um, as, a, as a means restriction.
0: So you're talking ma- maybe about uh, overdose deaths, possibly, when you're looking at the prescription? When we're
8: looking at poisoning deaths, yes. Yeah, okay. Deaths from overdose or any, any well, yeah, we tend to call them poisons, poisons yeah. or anything like okay.
0: that. Okay, yeah. So it could be accidental, it could be... Or do, do they have to be ruled a suicide in order for your study to be um, For my
8: For my specific study, I'm looking at suicide, so okay. intentional poisonings. Yeah. But my boss, Nicholas Buckley, is a toxicologist, and he's interested in any poisonings right. and any injuries. So he's kind of doing the same thing, but he's looking at um, medicine regulation in general and these accidental poisonings okay. as well.
0: And so if I understand, you guys are looking at primary care, GP, data as well as secondary, like acute yeah. service data as well, is that right? Yeah.
8: How yeah. did you
1: manage to get that data? It seems like it's a very scary
8: thing to get, like or, like difficult to get. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. taken me a long time. Yeah. Okay. I'm like very wrinkled now compared <laughs> to when I started trying to get this data five years ago. Fair. Yeah. We yeah. finally got it. So yeah, it took five years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah that's
0: quite yeah. Okay. And that yeah. now, just on a slightly different note, you're now living in Perth, and do you plan to stay here, or do you think you'll go back to Sydney?
8: I think I'll stay. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Got a house now. Yeah. Okay. Bought a house, and the house that we have here is... So much bigger than it would ever be in Sydney. So, mm-hmm. like, our lounge room is the size of our old house. Yeah, I've right. heard
3: of the, the price <laughs> differences between yeah. Sydney and yeah. Perth. Yeah, a bit tough. Yeah,
8: yeah. yeah. Oh,
0: that's great. Oh, well, uh, hopefully, you'll be sticking around at the, at the school here and not going to one of our competitors.
8: Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Give me <laughs> a job. Yeah,
0: excellent. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll put your details in the links for the podcast. No, I'm just joking.
8: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for
0: the time, Kate. No problems. Hi. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealthatoutlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. We're rolling. So, hi Steve. G'day. Do you just want to um, introduce yourself and, and tell us a bit about what you're doing?
6: Yeah, okay. So, my name is Steve Vanderhorn. Um, so, I started a PhD a number of years ago now, sort of stopped and started a little bit, um, but it's sort of in the area of air pollution research. Okay. And so, the, t- the specific topic that I'm looking at is uh, context of electric vehicles and sort of future health impact scenarios. Um, and it's sort of looking at sort of Different modelling methods that might sort of underpin that. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the topic.
0: And, and who are you doing your PhD with?
6: Yeah, so Jane Hayworth is my oh, yeah. supervisor. Kevin's also on board, and also a guy from Syro. His name is Martin Cote Okay. Yeah, so he's he's the kind of air quality modeller person. Yeah.
1: Okay. So uh, this is a bit of a doozy question. Um, what do you think of the the new electric vehicle? hullabaloo happening in the politics at the moment.
6: Oh yeah, it's just a mirage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we don't. It's sort of just. It's the same as climate change and the the whole sort of net twenty fifty sort of net zero emissions sort of thing that's going on. It's just a. You know, There's an election coming up, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. It's sort of a hot topic. It um,
3: is.
6: Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is that we can't sort of think that far into the future, really. But we have to, and so yeah. I mean, electric vehicles is just it, it probably will happen anyway, just by default. Yeah. So you know, I mean, it's just matter of time before we don't have cars here Um, they're all going to be electric when they come over from Europe Um, but I I agree with you it's sort of just a little bit of a a, a talking it up at the moment yeah Yeah, like politics is you know yeah yeah it is yeah it's pretty annoying it's a a 180 degree turn really from what they were talking about last year so
0: the last election I think the opposition party um, basically had a policy to, to ramp up electric vehicle use yeah and they got accused of ruining the weekend for people you know.
6: yeah yeah you can't take your Ute and sort of drive your trailer sort of thing yeah. <laughs> yeah but um have you ever actually driven an electric vehicle before yeah, no. yeah i mean I, i'm sort of with most people can't afford one and i won't be able to for a, for a while but yeah i drove one the other day and it's just it's pretty amazing actually yeah, yeah. quite um, smooth that's it's the impression hot, i get and what's well, it's fast okay. yeah it's like you just put You put your you know your foot down on the accelerator. It's just it's phenomenal. You just have to take it off almost straight away because it's just a too too quick. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, 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 it's very responsive in both ways. So if you take your foot off the accelerator, it also it's got regenerative braking, which means that it basically you don't need to push the brake. Yeah, it just. It breaks by itself and it goes back into the battery yeah, uh, okay. from that. Yeah, the closest so.
0: thing I would have driven is a golf buggy.
6: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a little bit like that because I've, I've driven those too. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like that, just on steroids, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's kind of, I mean, I don't have a particular view on whether or not we should have electric vehicles. I'm just interested in the idea of sort of new emerging technologies and how things have changed sort of in the last little while. You know, before before we know it, will be ride sharing or something. you won't need cars maybe as much as we do now, and that I, sort of thing. I think about like the driverless yeah. cars, the autonomous yeah. cars. Oh, I think they're yeah. definitely
0: coming because yeah. obviously that it's more efficient if you know there's a pool of those yeah. picking people up
6: and dropping them off. That's yeah, awesome. I mean it's just I mean I, I think those sorts of things we have to sort of think about. Yeah. Have you guys yeah. been on the
1: the bus on the south? Um, side of Perth.
6: Nice. There's, there's a
1: driverless electric bus. Oh, there. yeah. Yeah, yeah so I haven't yeah. been on it, but I've heard of it. It's just, near yeah. the zoo, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very cool. You get a certificate yeah. afterwards. Okay, I'll so, check that out. Yeah.
6: Yeah. <laughs> but if you go to Europe, though, it's Be it's everywhere. just as commonplace, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's sort of just, you know, it just really seems like. Uh, kind of the future and I think we in Australia and New Zealand are just quite reluctant to sort of embrace mm. yeah. that but okay. we sort of at, at some stage we'll just you know like I said before it'll just be you know those are the cars that you can get yeah Yeah. so yeah and just
0: quickly uh, you, you said that you've enrolled in your PhD some time ago yeah what, what have you been
6: doing to kill the time alongside that <laughs> oh yeah I had a baby yeah okay. so okay, that sort of changed <laughs> things a little bit is that what you mean maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah and i that together with some work with Syro. Okay, yep. Yeah, so I'm going to give a little presentation afterwards to show you the sort of stuff that they're doing. Yeah, oh, great. Um, but, yeah, it's fun. It's just yeah. fun.
0: Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Right. Thanks for having a chat. Well, Karen, you're back for another conversation with us.
9: <laughs> yes, thank you. It's fantastic to be back. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so uh, I should say we're talking with... Associate Professor... Ah, uh,
9: I wish. Just Dr. Doctor Martin. Mm-hmm. I
0: was trying to give you a promotion. Thanks.
9: <laughs>
0: and so, you did a, a brief presentation on drumbeat. Um, yes. This is something you've been involved in for a few years now isn't it?
9: Yeah so probably about five or six years we, we sort of um, very gradually started getting involved and Lisa had started doing some evaluation for them um, and then when I had a Healthway Fellowship I started evaluating drumbeat in schools mm-hmm. and it was actually because of the drumbeat in schools evaluation that I started to realise what was happening in schools and how bad things were and how some of the practises that schools used to try and um, change behaviour of children who were displaying dysfunctional behaviour, that it really needed some help and some change. So that's actually how Thoughtful Schools really started. Um, and a lot of the kids who attended the drumbeat sessions were the children who really were challenged by the school environment. And so um talking to the school psychologist it became really clear that really the system needed to change mm-hmm. so Hence the Thoughtful Schools Project. because yeah. mm-hmm.
0: there's a lot of, I guess, anecdotal evidence at this stage about engaging with what they call detached youth in the UK through arts and music and, and even sports yeah. and that sort of thing. And I've seen it. I think it's the Ted Knox Foundation over in New South Wales. I've been out to there. They've got a centre out in Liverpool in the okay. west of Sydney, and it's basically a lot of kids who aren't really going to school and whatnot, yeah. but they're sitting in this room with a lot of computers making music,
9: Mm -hmm. uh, which
0: is probably hitting some of the same kind of themes as drumbeat.
9: Absolutely, and we think drumbeat um, works not just because of the discussion, of course, that happens in between the drumming, but also because... Um, of the rhythm and um, even one of the audience members said to me I felt calm as you were doing it and that is something that participants always talk about the calming effect of Mm. drumbeat but also um, we know that we've got movement and music happening as well as creativity so I think one of the reasons drumbeat is so effective is you've got these multiple components that work together to sort of create a bit of a cumulative effect um, Mm. for the participants and you know pretty much all the evaluations that we've done have you know the participants have talked about Drumbeat actually changing their lives and that was particularly relevant for the prisoners um, when we spoke to them Um, and there were a few people in the prison who said that when they came out they just really wanted to keep going with Drumbeat and it was Mm. um, so beneficial for them. So, So where is this program heading next Then? Well, they've just got some new funding to um, run the Veterans Program again. And the Aboriginal um, drumbeat that they're trialling in the Kimberley is then being, um, oh sorry, it's being trialled in Broome and in Halls Creek. And then um, they'll be trialling it um, hopefully in the Northern Territory as well. So the idea with the Aboriginal um, drumbeat program is to create a more um, focused program which really helps. Um, uh, some of the issues that are faced uniquely by um, Aboriginal people. So mm. it's, it's an amazing program. Mm.
0: Mm, well, excellent. Well, well, thanks very much for your time and for your talk, or your presentation, Elliot. Uh, yeah, We look thanks. forward to having you guys back on the podcast. We we're saying to Monique when you've got some new results for yeah. schools, we'll get you guys Just back it on. And, yeah, yeah so getting
9: some very interesting information Excited. coming through. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah,
0: yeah
6: great. Thanks. thanks Karen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If <laughs> yeah. you, happy yeah,
6: to have a you quick will,
10: well, yeah, but yeah. I don't have to talk about the rain study. Oh, yeah. no, no. I can talk about sleep. Whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Whatever you fine. want. So, do you just want to give listeners a brief intro to you and, and what you do?
10: Okay, so I have two roles. I'm the director of the Rain Study, which is this longitudinal life course study that's been going since the late 1980s. Uh, I do that one day a week, yeah. and the other four days a week, I'm a professor in psychology, and I study sleep. And cognition, and how sleep and poor sleep impacts our mental skills.
0: Yes, and is a risk factor for dementia. Mm. And we should probably say, Professor Romula Bucks. Yes. Yeah. Did I not introduce myself? <laughs> no, like, and okay. we didn't either. Oh, it's so, possible yeah. I just didn't have it running when you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you, so you come at it from a, from a psychology of sleep type angle.
10: Well, that's my own research, yes. Yeah. Um, my role as the director of the RAIN study is much more about helping other researchers with very diverse research interests to um, leverage the great value of this international treasure because it really is a treasure. Mm. Um, and I try not to be too biased about the fact that I think everything sleep is far more important right. than anything else <laughs> because I'm not allowed to do that. I have to be... Yeah, I have objective. to be equitable and yeah, objective yeah. yes but of course my secret passion is, <laughs>
0: is sleep but that's only
1: for one day the other four you can focus on the sleep it doesn't
10: quite work out that way but ideally yeah, yeah. yes
0: yeah. so what what are sort of the key findings from the sleep research you've been involved with
10: oh um, so A I,
0: that even
10: relatively small disturbances to sleep and to regular sleep um, have Bad effects on our attention, problem solving, and memory skills.
0: Mm-hmm.
10: Um, if they continue in the longer term, those effects can be quite significant and indeed can produce risks for developing dementia later okay. in life. And that's because when we sleep, that's kind of when our brains clean house. There's a, um, a system called the glymphatic system, if you like, a system of water channels in the brain that open up. When we're in deep sleep, and allow um, the brain to sort of flush out the um, the byproducts of neuronal activity that are kind of clogging up the brain, if you like. And if we don't sleep, and we don't get that nice deep restorative sleep, as if our sleep is disturbed or too short, we don't have that house cleaning um, working properly and so that build up of neuronal toxins can actually cause inflammation and is associated with the deposition of a a nasty protein called amyloid protein and that can be a risk factor for dementia. Mm. So we tend to think of sleep as being something that's a waste of time, um, that is... You know, it's the famous words of, 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 um, I can't remember the name of the the artist, I'll sleep when I'm dead, Bon Jovi, yes, John Bon Jovi, thank you very much, (laughs) I'll sleep when I'm dead, and I say to people, you will, if you don't, you will be, because it really is a a risk factor, aside from the fact that it affects response speed, reaction time, so if you're not sleeping acutely, that can increase your risk of road traffic accident, Mm. but it also puts your blood pressure up, Yeah. Yeah causes erectile dysfunction in men, okay. depression, mm. marital disharmony, mm. are lots of things that wow. we don't think of as being the consequences of poor, sleep. Oh, poor so, sleep.
1: So how do you discover these kind of key findings? How do you research sleep?
10: Um, I do it in a number of different ways. So I have two broad streams of research. One, I study a very, very common sleep disorder called ob- obstructive sleep apnea. So I recruit people from sleep clinics who have been diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea and um, explore the impact on their well-being, both just observationally but also um, following treatment and see whether um, CPAP treatment, which is this Mm -hmm. this mask you wear over your face to keep your airway open at night, whether that improves mood and cognition, and it does. Mm -hmm. Um, The other way is, um, along with colleagues in the School of Psychological Science, I'm the director of a longitudinal study called the Healthy Aging Research Mm Programme, and so we study people... from an observational perspective who describe naturalistic sleep phenomena Mm. rather than a category of diagnosis and look for associations and predictions longitudinally. Um, So we know that if you have poor sleep earlier in life, that can actually produce... Is associated with greater risk of negative health and, and mental consequences later in life. Yeah. Controlling for all the kinds of other factors that you think might be associated, mm. so a kind of mixture of of uh, clinical and experimental work and
0: observational, mm. sort of more epidemiological yeah. work. But this question might be a bit like how long's a piece of string. How much <laughs> sleep do people generally need?
10: Depends on how old you are. Okay. There are individual differences, but let's just assume that your average listener to this podcast is an adult. Um, we say seven to nine hours. Okay. Some people will only need six. Um, certainly seven or eight is, is considered optimal. You know when you're not getting enough sleep because you will find yourself kind of nodding off in lectures or mm-hmm. falling asleep at the wheel or having a real energy dip that's very, very powerful after lunch. Um, and knowing that you're phasing out, that you're getting irritable, Okay. you can also oversleep though you can sleep too much yep. and that is also bad for you too so there's this is okay. sweet spot like so many things mm-hmm. um there's this sweet spot in the middle which is somewhere between sort of seven eight maybe maximum nine hours okay. if you're sleeping ten you're probably sleeping too much yep. If you're sleeping five you're really definitely probably sleeping too little yep. and it's amazing how many people think sleep's a waste of time so they don't prioritize it
0: right and has your research touched on why people might have their sleep disturbed, other than sleep apnea level? Like, you know.
10: Well, so um, shift work is one reason why people's uh, sleep is very is often very disturbed. I don't study shift work, but I have colleagues who do, and of course there are lots of people in WA, given it's a mining state, doing shift work, mm-hmm. and shift work is really really bad for sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of sleep disorders as well that can produce poor sleep. In, um, obstructive apnea is, is the most common. Some people would say actually insomnia is the most common. It depends. They often co-occur. Okay. And insomnia can be caused by lots of things. Um, worry, a sort of ruminative style, stress. Mm-hmm. It can be a result of pain. It can be a result of apnea. And sometimes once you've developed the insomnia, even when the thing causing it is treated, you're left with it, the gift
0: okay. of the perpetual insomnia you sort of get used to it i guess your body yeah. does yeah.
10: well it could have come habitual you develop yeah. bad habits um and the, of course the other reason is just lifestyle factors um edison and the light bulb right a lot to answer for yes blue light in light bulbs
0: mm-hmm.
10: blue light coming from screen devices there's also lots of stimulation coming from those screen devices and that actually tells our brain to wake up right. so we can't sleep so you know the classic thing of you're kind of nodding off on the sofa, and instead of getting up and going to bed, yeah. you turn on some really stirring, violent <laughs> video game, or you yeah. watch something with explosions, and suddenly you're wide awake until yeah. two o'clock in the morning because your body's gone. Oh, is it time to wake up now? Because mm-hmm. you've yeah. given it all the wrong signals. Mm-hmm. Um, so really bad sleep habits, and sleep problems are common mm. with lots and lots of things mm. as if you've got arthritis you get sleep problems if you have mental health difficulties you get sleep problems if you have parkinson's you get sleep problems yep. you know <laughs> you name it a lot. Yeah. sleep will be affected by it and many of the treatments that we give people for conditions can also produce sleep problems in themselves mm. so it's kind of a universal theme
0: yeah okay hence my passion because <laughs> it's fixable yeah well, I reckon we've got a longer conversation to have at some point in the yeah, future. Yeah, sounds
10: like
0: it. <laughs> we'll have to badge you to, to come would, on for a depth discussion. would
10: be delighted. There are now. quite a few people who study sleep yeah. in the um, uh, in UWA, including people who study sleep in children, experts mm-hmm. in insomnia, experts in the impact of sleep in industry... Um, I can put you in touch with people who've now moved to other universities, but it doesn't matter, who, um,
0: mm-hmm.
10: who've been studying um, sleep and shift work, sleep mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Sub-mar- submariners, for mm-hmm. example. Cool. Uh, really, really interesting mm. um, topic, yeah, very broad. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, we'll keep yeah. in touch then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, do, thanks very do. much for your time. <laughs>
0: that was our range of chats so let's <laughs> present
1: it was good to have such like a variety of content yeah like it wasn't just one single part of public health or what you'd even consider just like that one part um yeah it was really good that everyone came up and talked to us and was happy to share and yeah yeah, yeah i really got good vibes from it all
0: It was really good <laughs> yeah um yeah some of the uh Projects I wasn't aware of, and some yeah. of the people that um, maybe aren't based at the school physically, mm, but, but mm-hmm. still affiliated with the school, but are doing really interesting work and yeah. whatnot. So, yeah, hopefully, you guys enjoyed that. Um, I think we should probably acknowledge the efforts of our co-organisers.
1: We should, yes. Yeah. So, part of the group for this event was Craig, myself, uh, Kevin, Charlie, Tina, and Anna. Yeah. Uh, they all work with the School of Population Global Health here at University of Western Australia, um, and without them, we wouldn't have the event.
0: That's right. I think it went, went off really well, and we're hoping that it's going to become an annual fixture in the calendar. We hope so, and that it'll be a bit bigger and a bit better next year. Um, Fingers crossed. And I think there's there was a few senior members of the school that were pretty impressed, and will probably throw their hat in the ring and. Hopefully, something fairly left field and entertaining.
1: Yeah, it's it's good to see like some of the the researchers that kind of have been here for such a long time doing like wonderful work. Actually, like get out of their shell and do something really cool and fun and exciting. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, (laughs)
0: excellent. All right. Well, as always, thank you for your efforts, Courtney. Oh, thank you. And we will be back with listeners soon with a new episode. We will. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.